Welcome to this week's Inside Marketing on a very special occasion. It is our 100th episode. And to celebrate that fact, I have a returning guest. It is the one and the only Rory Sutherland. So I'm looking forward to this one. It could be a long one, but it's going to be a good one. That's Rory Sutherland on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's episode. As I said in the intro, I have a returning guest because this is a very special episode. It's our 100th episode. So I'm delighted to welcome Rory, the one and only Rory Sutherland back as a returning guest. Rory, how are you? Well, congratulations on your 100th episode. It can only be a tiny fraction of podcasts that make it that far. So uh, it's uh, really something. Yeah, it Thank is. you very much. It's a real honor to be on your 100th episode too. No, no and, and it's great to have you back. And I think... Um, like just you you were on it quite a while ago maybe two and a half years ago maybe two years ago and no disrespect to any of the guests that came before you but it was a bit of a hard slog getting guests on at the start right I, I, and I don't know why you decided to come on but when you did come on it made me getting other guests considerably easier because I'd always say Rory Sutherland did it and you know and people like to be in in good company so it, I, I, I always put that down as a kind of a landmark other before that it had been internal people from you know, from people I work with or people in the Irish Times, and it was a bit of a slog. And then it all changed, so it became considerably easier. I don't think I would have got Byron Sharp and Mark Ritson had I not been able to say, it's good enough for Rory, so thanks. Well, also, also, I think it's a really, actually, there's an important marketing point about the value of doing podcasts. And my argument's always been, uh, if you have an opportunity, if advertising agencies spend most of their time and make all of their money speaking to one person at a time, you know, one client at a time. We've we've created this sort of no conflict rule, which effectively mm-hmm. means that our clients are a what's technically known as a monopsony. You know, only they can buy our expertise in a particular segment area. Uh, I w- I think that's a mistake. Actually, um, I think it's bizarre that management consultancies are allowed to have specialisms mm. working with six competitors in the segment. Ad agencies aren't. I think it's a. I, I, I think it actually makes the industry less valuable than it could be. Um, but also, my argument is very simple, which is if you get a chance to speak to a hundred or more people in an hour simultaneously, uh, simple probabilistic maths makes that a worthwhile thing to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. My my, my boss has, has a saying when we were when we were pitching for things and we would have had conflict, he'd say, Two is conflict, three is specialism. And three is a specialism. Yeah, absolutely. So you, once yeah. you go beyond two, two, it's only a problem if you got two. Right. Um, yeah, well, we crack on. I, I mean, I'll get through as much as I can, um, as quickly as I can. But um, anyway, it, it is as long as it takes. And, you know, well, I have a time in for you. And I won't keep you longer than I've promised. But let's kick off. Um, like, you've been at the top of your game well, really well respected and at the very, very top of your profession for a long time. So how do you think advertising has changed from like maybe when you started off in your career to now? It, has it, is it all that different? I know it's technology's changed, I mean, but how has it changed? People say I'm at the top of my profession. I'm, I, I slightly cheated in that I slightly invented my own profession, which was really the combination of marketing and behavioral science. Uh, to be honest, it's a combination of marketing, behavioral science, uh, creativity and complexity, I would say, if I'm being absolutely honest about it. But I think it's a field that needs to exist. So I, along with about five other people, more or less at the same time, um, uh, you know, essentially said, we need a new discipline here. You know, there's, there's there's a missing 
component, mm-hmm. effectively, to uh, marketing creativity. And, you know, it, it's not easy to create a new discipline. So, But on the other hand, being the top of a new discipline is slightly easier. You just get in there first. Or as David Ogilvy said, you survive longer. Um, that, mm. um, uh, uh, David Ogilvy had some fairly, I, I think he was sort of conscious of the fact that he was in his 40s when he started in advertising. And, um, uh, you know, it was pretty difficult for him to get to the top of a profession. But he did partly by, as he said, partly by actually doing very well and partly by outliving his competitors. <laughs> but, no, no, I mean, uh, I, but I, I still very strongly believe that um, marketing services and marketing itself have been painted into a kind of Marcom's corner that... You know, what's happened is that because the biggest component of the marketing budget is probably the comms budget, uh, people tend to proceed as though things are important in proportion to the amount of budget they absorb. Right, yeah. Which, I, which, by the way, I think is totally mistaken. I think the most valuable thing you can do as a marketer is often to notice something and come up with a very, very small intervention, which can have a very big effect. Um, but I'm, I'm absolutely conscious of the fact that I think that um, uh, we need to go back to the days, if you like, where marketing covered the waterfront and there was a wide application for creativity and human insight within business rather than allowing it to be kind of confined to the comms corner the comms ghetto as it mm, were mm. yeah and and so I, I i'm sure you're familiar with orlando woods book and th- this idea that we're, we're very in we're very inwardly looking looking inwards and downwards and kind of closed off perceptionally a bit like the the, the dog with the kind of the cone and it's, its head after an operation type thing um, and r- advertising feels quite rational at the moment now there, there is a belief that consumers are extremely clued in. Advertising doesn't work. We can't, you know, p- you know, pull the wool over people's eyes anymore. We're, they're too savvy. Um, but is it not? Is it not still a case today that per- creating perception, which is what advertising influences, that can still create value in the same way as it used to before? Is that true or not still? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the uh, undoubtedly. I mean, in, in B two B and in B two C communications, the decision to do something is very, very heavily influenced by emotion. And uh, in any form of kind of, uh, an effectively sort of emotion heuristics, rules of thumb, you know, non, what you might call non-mathematical rationality, if you like, plays an enormous part in deciding what people do. Um, And, uh, It's absolutely important, I think, that we keep that study alive because I started in direct marketing. I'm really grateful I started in direct marketing because I love direct marketing and I love the fact that you can measure everything. I love the fact that you can test. I love the fact that you discover extraordinary things through testing. But the only downside of direct marketing was that you weren't ever allowed to do anything you couldn't measure. Right, and yeah. I think we've got. I think I think marketing made a kind of naive mistake, which is it thought if only we become more accountable and better at quantification, people will give us the money we deserve because we'll be able to justify it. And the unfortunately, the obverse of that particular coin is we created a situation where no one would give us any money unless we could measure it. Right. 
And it, it has become too rational, but that's part of a trend, and Orlando Woods would say the same thing. That's part of a wider socio-cultural trend, where I think, if you want to put it in a sentence, the world is just becoming, business is just becoming more and more bureaucratic. Mm. And you might argue that we've created a kind of culture, which I don't think was there in the 80s or early 90s, which is really about um, everybody having to mathematically justify their own existence in the short term every month. Okay, it, yeah. it, it's both a short-termist and a, and a narrowness of focus. Um, and it probably does arise out of fear, but it's that kind of bureaucratic mentality, which is you don't have to do anything great, but whatever you do, don't mess up. Yeah, yeah. And it's created a kind of culture of incrementalism. Because my argument would be there will always be large aspects of what marketing does and should do, where the effects, even if very positive and known to be positive, will never really be fully quantifiable or attributable. I mean, the most classic example of that is fame, mm. okay, which is that if you are famous, loads and loads of positive shit happens to you, or, or at least <laughs> positive opportunities are brought to you, um, which would not happen if you were not famous, Okay. Uh, you know, in other words, people think of opportunities you never would have thought of yourself to partner with you or to yeah. work with you or whatever. Yeah. People come and work for you for less money because they're happy working for a more prestigious brand. When your chief executive rings someone up, they return the call. Okay, mm -hmm. All those things are kind of a product of fame. But actually putting a cash value on that is actually never going to be possible. Mm. because the attribution, you certainly can't attribute your fame to any one piece of marketing communication. That's the first point. And secondly, putting a value on things like return telephone calls and willing higher quality employees is never going to be possible with the best will in the world. And yet we've created, I think, I think the IT industry have sold us on this idea that eventually it's just a matter of time before the whole world becomes knowable and everything becomes calculable mm -hmm. and every penny you spend is optimal. And it's never going to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the same, the same talent, okay, you know, one of the sharpest tools in the box when it comes to statistics says that there, you know, there are limited conditions under which big data really works and marketing and human behavior probably aren't among them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to, we'll dip in out a few things because I'm fascinated by psychology. I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, obviously human psychology. And, but like, I think people are funny. I think people are really funny, right? Because I'm, and we'll talk, so we'll dip in and out of this, but I'm fascinated by, by the science, behavioral science. Um, and I, I think it's amazing. So I want to talk about rituals first and foremost. Now I heard a story, I don't know if it's yeah. true or not, but someone told me before that, um, screw cap wine is the same as um, a cork wine, right? It's the same wine. If it's the same to me, yeah. but yet I, and I know it's probably not rational, but I perceive the value of a, of a cork wine to be far greater because of that, you know, the after turn and screwing it in and the pot there's, there's and the sniffing the coin. Actually, which is New Zealand wine, which is interesting because for environmental reasons, the New Zealand wine industry, I think, took a decision to go 100% over the screw top. Mm-hmm in the hope that if you had enough screw-top wine bottles, it would become the new norm and you wouldn't need to use as much cork. But you lose okay. that ritual. Well, interesting. I, I kind of agree. I mean, it, it, some of these things, by the way, some of these things I think are what you might call innate and unavoidable. 
And it may be that corking wine and the whole business of, you know, uncorking it um, is somehow just you know, rather like unwrapping a packet of cigarettes. I don't know if you're ever a smoker. I was, but, you know, yeah, I was. Yeah, that, that business of actually, you know, running around the outside, peeling off yeah. the cellophane, you know, that was just something which undoubtedly contributed to your enjoyment of the thing or to the perceived value of the subsequent experience. And then Dunhill International actually had two compartments, you know, that oh, was yeah. taking it even further. Um, now, there are interesting things where it's purely associative. In other words, consumers have just learned to associate cork with quality, composite cork, slightly lower quality, screw top, lower quality still. Mm. And you could argue that that's simply something that was, um, you, you know, the composite cork, which is the cork made yeah, up yeah. a little bit. And, you know, you don't get composite cork in Chateau Lafitte, you know. Yeah. And if you went to Chateau Lafitte and said, why don't you use composite cork, they'd shoot you. Yeah. Okay. But equally, there are bizarre things which actually are entirely um, what you might call learned. They don't, they don't have any particular value. So one of the weird things is that it's always been very difficult for bird's eye in the UK. This may be true in Ireland as well. Um, to um, get people really to accept that frozen food is very, very good. Mm -hmm. Now, in France, the equivalent of M&S foods in France is a thing called pica, and it's what you might call a posh Iceland, okay? And so if French people want to buy high-quality, ready-made, kind of prepared, pre-prepared food, they get a pica and they buy it frozen. And they see that as prestigious. What apparently happened in the UK, which depositioned Birdseye, was because M&S did pre-prepared fresh food, ready meals, mm -hmm. the whole market just assumed, well, if M&S does it, that has to be better. When in all kinds of ways, actually, it isn't. I mean, there are lots of, you know, just as the Kiwis believed, you, know, you might argue that cork's biodegradable, but I'm sure there is an environmental cost to cork production. Um, the Kiwis argued that screw-top wine was basically no worse in terms of the quality of the contents and preserving the quality of the contents, and it was better for a whole load of other reasons, not least that you can screw the thing yeah, back yeah. on, by the way. Okay. Um, it would be nice, in a way, if we could get British people to recognise the, the value of frozen food. Is it possible? I mean, it's complicated because that argument, by the way, that, you know, bird's eye frozen peas are actually better than fresh peas because all the sort of interesting nutrients are frozen yeah. in the moment the thing's picked. Um, the, other, the other fact being, of course, that frozen food has um, been relatively cushioned from the cost of living crisis. Because, of course, you don't have shelf life problems. You don't have distributional problems. Storage, you know, long-term storage is relatively possible. And so one, one other way of looking at that is, is to say that actually food freezing is one of the sort of 20 miraculous discoveries of the last 200 years. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a bit unfair because the Inuit would have been doing it years before. Okay, People in really cold climates would have been freezing things, you know, for centuries before. But that actually... that. It's something that we fail to recognize. Mm. You know, the, now the French, maybe it's because they kind of invented it. I, I, I don't know. Um, but for whatever reason, because you have Picard and that's frozen, 
and they see high-quality ready meals as being something you buy frozen. Now, Cook, that British company, you probably don't know about it, it's perfectly integrated. It's got a factory in Kent and a, and a chain of about 50 stores, I think, or 60 stores, which sell high-quality handmade frozen food. That's an attempt to kind of redress the balance. Mm. So you know, some, some of these things are, you know, in other words, we, we make assumptions from associations. Mm. Racism would be, you know, I'm not saying that our dislike of frozen food is as bad as racism, <laughs> but it probably is, a, you know, a form of sort of learned, uncorrected prejudice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. We, and we could talk, I could talk for an hour about that in its own. Um, I, I, I recently heard you uh, talking about psychological moonshots um, versus like technical moon, or technological moonshots. So can you just explain to me a little bit about that and what the oh, difference was? Right. Well, Google for a time came up with this idea of 10x or the moonshot or alphabet. If I'm being strictly correct, I should say alphabet rather than Google. And they came up with the idea of 10x, that there were certain innovations which were so significant, not just in and of themselves, but probably in the potential they created for even further innovations on top, which they referred to as moonshots or 10x uh, mm -hmm. achievements. And 10x was that they took some measure or something, and they didn't just incrementally improve it, they multiplied it or divided it by 10. So the reason Google wanted to get into autonomous self-driving vehicles was that they believed that you could reduce road accidents by a factor of 10. And Google's argument was a certain amount, indeed quite a large amount of progress, is incremental and gradual and evolutionary. But there are these kind of penicillin-level moonshot discoveries, and that they then apportioned a certain proportion of budget for looking for those. Now, my argument as a counter to this was that psychological 10Xs or psychological moonshots were actually much easier to attain than technological ones. And the point I would make is that it's really, really difficult to make a train 10 times faster, okay? Mm -hmm. That was a realistic aspiration in sort of 1841 when the trains were going at 35 miles an hour. Now, you know, getting a train that goes at 1,000 miles an hour, you might argue is simply ridiculous. In other words, you have, you have, to, you have to have maglev. And apart from anything else, there's a problem of land-based things going at 1,000 miles an hour, which is, you know, if they collide or fall off the tracks, yeah. everybody on the train dies, and we've got to factor that in as well. Now, I would argue that making a train journey 10 times more enjoyable might be comparatively easy and require a remarkably low investment. It just requires a degree of psychological insight, preceded by the insight that time, the human perception of time is highly elastic and context-dependent. We, we know, you know, we can almost tell that through phrases like time flies when you're having fun or it was the longest 20 minutes of my life. Mm -hmm. And that changing the quality of something, which involves psychological framing, if you like, is much, much cheaper and more effective as a way to create economic value than changing the quantity of something. And so this is where my, I hate to repeat it, but the Eurostar theoretical thought exercise came from, which is arguably putting Wi-Fi on the Eurostar would have been a much more important innovation than spending six billion pounds uh, making the journey between London and Folkestone, you know, 35 minutes shorter. Mm -hmm. And the point I'm making there is that time where you can either entertain yourself or do useful work 
uh, hasn't is no different in quantity from time when you're sitting there reading the paper but in quality it might be 10 times better I and mean, the reason the quality of the journey on the eurostar i would argue is even if the overall end-to-end journey takes longer is better than the quality of flying okay is because it's one period of uninterrupted time where you sit down and can concentrate on whatever you want to concentrate on you know even when it was a three-hour journey to Paris, it was three unbroken hours. Mm. The two and a half hours it took to fly to Paris was basically, you know, you go get get in the cab, go to the airport, go to the check-in desk, check in your luggage, go to the security line. And basically, there wasn't a kind of block of time of 40 minutes or more where you weren't being dicked around at some level or another. Mm. And so, so it's interesting because I think that, Psychological 10Xs are a totally worthy, very worthwhile area of exploration. I generally don't think we're looking for them enough. Mm, yeah. And yes. I'll give you an interesting, an interesting one, which I just discussed um, yesterday, for example, is what complexity theory teaches you is that uh, there isn't necessarily a correlation between the scale of the input or the intervention and the scale of the effect or the scale of the change. And that's particularly true with human behavior. And my colleague, um, Pete Dyson, who co-wrote, or he was the main author, if I'm being honest, but co-wrote with me um, Transport for Humans. Um, he's a very keen cyclist. I'm a car lover. We don't agree about everything in terms of the future of transport, okay? But one thing we do agree on is this idea. It's very simple. That it doesn't work in Ireland because I understand your train network's not the best. Brutal. Yeah, don't talk. It's, it's awful. Okay. But in the UK... Now, I, I love cars. I, I don't think there's any replacement for the car. I think most of the economy depends on cars, vans, and taxis. Um, I think that you know, 30% of, maybe even 40% of people live in a place where life wouldn't be particularly manageable if you didn't have a car or some sort of autonomous form of transport, okay? I'm not one of those people who go, uh, we'll just have to get everybody going by train. But... It does strike me as ridiculous that 86% of journeys between London and York take place by car when there's actually a pretty good and, and in the middle of the day, a very affordable train service, which would do the job a lot better. Now, what's going on there? Well, it's 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 a, a large part of it, I think, is just habit. You live in York, right? Uh, you need to get to London. Because you live in York, or, you, or more likely you live 20 miles outside of York, basically every journey you make you start by getting in the car mm-hmm. you haven't taken a train since you were a kid that's not that uncommon there's a large group of people called rail rejectors okay so you don't even think of the train or if anybody mentions the train you just find a reason to to reject it because it makes you feel uncomfortable you don't know where to park you don't know where to buy a ticket you don't know how, how much tickets cost you don't understand the ticketing system on the railways the pricing system so you just get in the car because it's familiar and it's habitual now my solution to this which apparently david halpin from the behavioral insights team tells me has been tried in australia very very successfully is you make tax disc the taxing your car should be made a hundred pounds more expensive but in return you're given 150 pounds of off-peak rail vouchers okay and the reason for that is that they, apparently they did this thing in australia where they just gave people sort of you know 40 dollars worth of free journeys on public transport or on trains and people thought well i don't want to waste this you know it's free 
So they made three train journeys or three, you know, local rail journeys. Now, some of those people said, this is crap, I'm not going to do it again. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Because if those people are taking the car, they're making an informed decision based on equal knowledge of both states. Yeah. Quite a lot of people basically thought, well, now I know how to do this. I should think about when I do it again. And some of them might have done it a lot, and some of them might have done it only occasionally. Mm-hmm. But it's a fundamentally deci- different decision between doing two things you're familiar with and doing one thing you're familiar with and one thing you're not. And so that business, I mean, a very simple thing, online I've heard it's five, by the way, not three. Uh, Online grocery delivery, what they tend to find is once you've done it five times, then you're not necessarily hooked. You don't generally become 100% loyal to online grocery delivery, but it will always thereafter form part of your repertoire. Mm -hmm. And similarly, you know, if, if you get people to take, you know, three or four train journeys in the course of the year, the likelihood is that from then on, it's part of their repertoire. It may be bigger, it may be smaller, but at least they're actually considering it. Mm. And so, you know, I think one of the interesting things is that governments, when they seek to change behaviour, they don't talk to marketers, they talk to economists. An economist's basic mood for changing behaviour is just bribing people. Mm-hmm. I was at a talk on energy policy and um, behavioural change at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, well, it was actually given in the town of city of Santa Fe. Uh, it was one of their things they do for the public. And there was a guy there who was the former director general of CERN. So, you know, pretty, you know, pretty much a pipe hit in the serial scientist. Right? Yeah. Okay. Now, and he said that the trouble is that every time I talk to economists, their their solution boils down to bribing people. Mm. I think that's that's a very fair criticism. They have a very, very narrow, um, uh, what you might call, very narrow set of levers, which is basically increase utility, reduce cost. Okay, yeah. and that that is an absolute catastrophe because there are a hundred creative solutions, ten of which will work better, and three of which will work much, much better, that also cost less. Mm. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, it's funny you talk about economists there because the the economic the economists' um, view of the world is that if you present people with all the information, you make it available, that they will make the right decision. And 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 AI, like if you think about what's happening, because AI wasn't really that big a deal when we spoke maybe three years ago. It's the the change has been phenomenal now. So AI yeah. kind of relies on that model. If you feed, if 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 you are predictive modeling, if you will. So if you input the data. Um, you know, people will make the rational decision, and and I always see in many ways you know, behavioral science as being the opposite of predictive modeling because because people don't do what they say they'll do, and they don't know why they do, and they don't care about it all that much. So, do you think that an over reliance on AI, which is happening, do you think that's an opportunity for people who like yourself who who really preach counterintuitive logic? Do you think those human skills of counter intuition will become more valuable or less valuable in an automated world? I have a lot of fears about AI, um, and I have a particular fear of uh, computers making decisions which are not the, where the decision is not then referred to a human for wider consideration. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you want, if you want my purest take on this, I don't even agree with speed cameras. Okay, I think the way a speed camera should work is you should film the infraction. And then a human being should look at the infraction in its wider setting and decide whether it was actually uh, worthy of punishment or not. 
Mm-hmm. So someone at two o'clock in the morning in a dual carriageway where there's a 40 limit, this is the case of the A13 going over London, the reason there's a 40 or 50 limit is really to reduce uh, traffic congestion. It's not for safety because there are no pedestrians anywhere nearby, okay? Now, someone at one o'clock in the morning on, you know, uh, driving along there at 50 does not deserve the same punishment, yeah. I would argue, as someone, you know, in peak hours basically weaving in and out of the traffic, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there are cases, and I, I know the people in the speed awareness courses disagree with me, that, you know, on one case I got done by a speed camera effectively avoiding a lunatic, which I felt particularly resentful about because it, no policeman would have arrested me, they would have arrested him, mm. okay? So that business of having machines make decisions without a pilot, if you like, yeah, okay, worries me a lot. Okay. Um, what is interesting about a sat nav is it comes up with an interesting idea, which I either obey or reject, depending on my own preferences and level of knowledge of the circumstances. By the way, you know, and you also have to know that, of course, a speed cam, a, 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 a GPS, a, a sat nav is biased. Yeah. Okay. So you know, a sat nav is undoubtedly biased towards reducing journey time um, and against looking at scenery, for example. Yeah. You know. Um, uh, and um, so, you know, depending on what you're trying to do with your journey, which is probably more complicated than what the sat-nav understands, uh, you may either obey the sat-nav or ignore it. I mean, it, now, used in a complementary way, I think AI can actually be extremely valuable in the same way that a sat-nav sometimes comes up with ideas or routes I wouldn't have thought of and sometimes comes up with routes I choose to ignore. And I'm second-guessing what it's thinking, mm. you know, to some mm. extent. Um, but I'm also looking at wider contextual things I know it doesn't know about. You know, like, for example, if I want to catch a plane, I want the route with the lowest variance, not necessarily the fastest route. A motorway is faster generally, but if a, you know, if a truck jackknifes on the motorway, I miss my plane. If I go on the A road, I'll still miss the plane if something goes wrong because I can just turn off and go around the problem. You know, yeah. optionality is a factor there, you see, which I don't think sat-navs really factor in. Yeah. You know, op- optionality and variance are two things there which I don't think they're really considering. And, you know, it's worth noting that the, the AI is only going to be as good as, as the assumptions of the person who programs it. And it also suffers from quantification bias because there isn't a quantity for beautiful scenery, yeah. but there is a quantity for time. So, so AI is going to be massively biased. Now, sometimes I think it'll come up with things where you go, woof, I never would have thought of that. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like working with a creative partner in an ad agency. The whole point of the creative partner is that between the two of you, you become better than any one person individually. Could yeah. Be. And um, uh, that that's really important. And, and by the way, the best chess player isn't a computer and it isn't a human. It's a human with a computer right. at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that makes sense. Now, and I'm also optimistic because sometimes I think actually AI will make stupid mistakes. Okay. Suggest things that are stupid because the AI has suggested them, even if the AI has suggested them for completely the wrong reasons. Okay. We will then try that thing because the AI has suggested it. And sometimes the stupid thing works because everything we try as human beings has to be pre rationalized. Because all creative people have to present their ideas to rational people for approval. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen the other way around. But with an AI, the AI doesn't come with reasons. 
You don't know what those reasons are. Now, if a consequence of that is sometimes we try things that don't make sense, which accidentally work, and in a low-risk setting, you know, where the downside is relatively low, that's not a bad thing to do, necessarily. Okay? Mm -hmm. Just trying weird stuff yeah. uh, is probably something, depending on what the worst-case scenario is and what the potential upside is, trying weird stuff is what entrepreneurs do to an extent. Okay, so that could be interesting. Um, what I don't really buy is a the idea of it replacing people completely and just generating ads. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. uh, uh, by the way, the potential risk of that could be pretty high. Yeah, um, I think I think it works better in, in in collaboration with people rather than replacing them. And I also think that there is a value, oddly, to the fact that no one in business will listen to someone who says, my instinct tells me this would be much more effective. But they will listen to it when a computer tells them to do the same thing, even yeah. when the computer is stupider and has no awareness of what it's like to be a human. And doesn't have to, and, do, and you're right, doesn't have to substantiate what it's saying. But I think as we... and. You're right on the on the traffic thing because we are like I would I would choose it's the quality of time. I know you spoke about the quality, not yeah. the absolute not the absolute um, <coughs> value or num amount of time, but it's the quality of the time. So I would prefer a thirty minute drive where I'm moving constantly than a twenty three minute drive where I'm stuck in traffic, which is not uh, logical. Right? Enough, that, that was exactly my drive home from Canary Wharf when I worked in Canary Wharf and lived in Kent. You could go on the A thirteen in a straight line, but a dog leg if you like, where you just kept rumbling along at 20 miles an hour, or you could have a shorter journey, but spend 10 minutes or eight minutes of it stationary waiting for the Blackwall Tunnel. Yeah. It was the A13 every yeah, time. Yeah, and that's, and, and you're right. And I think it's good you say that because we take... Actually, actually, by the way, that's not unintelligent. That's not just a question of preference. That's an instinctive understanding that if the traffic keeps moving, you have optionality. In other words, you yeah. can go, this is shit, I'm going to turn off at the next okay, interchange. Yeah. Right. Okay. If the traffic's completely stationary, there is literally nothing you can do. Yeah, that you're right. Yeah. So it's, it's the quality the of that of time people, and the options. Yeah. I'll tell you that lovely example: the irony of people who buy four by fours because they live somewhere where it snows, or you know, or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And what you suddenly realise, I, I had a you know a four by four, and then I suddenly realised that the four by four is great in the snow until the car in front of you gets stuck. <laughs> okay. Yeah. At which point, at which point you can have all the sort of chunky tires and four-wheel traction you want, but you ain't going anywhere. Yeah. Right? No, you're right. Yeah. And um uh, you know, unless you're a tank, in which case you can actually you drive, drive over, over a car. everybody. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's, you know, you're just, you're just as stuck as you were if you're in a standard car. And so, I think that understanding that actually being in moving traffic means you have potential escape routes, whereas being in stationary yeah. traffic yeah. don't. Totally. I think is, is, you know, I, I mean, you know, maybe the emotion that drives it is just claustrophobia, but it isn't totally irrational. But yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. Um, and it's great that you, it's good that you talk about because I think, I think, Mark and this boatism because we tend to want to live in a binary world of it's A or B it's that's better than that and when you think about AI it's not AI or human that you can have both and I think that's a, this, a, this idea of kind of embracing boatism one uh, not being the, mutually the, the, exclusive the is great the narrative of tech is that the narrative of tech is that the technological solution is better than what it replaces Okay, and therefore it needs to replace it completely. And this is what led to my thing. Bothism, I think, is um, a very simple coinage of Ritson's, which I think is one of the most important concepts. I would also argue, I suspect that 
people who've grown up in a kind of oriental thought tradition are better at bothism than people in the west because mm-hmm. we had the scottish enlightenment which was bothist and then the french enlightenment which unlike the scottish enlightenment wasn't really an enlightenment <laughs> in every respect okay and you know one of them was about the supreme power of reason whereas in the scottish enlightenment you had hume basically saying you know reason is and should only be the slave of the passions and so on now the the interesting thing there with bothism, uh, I've also got a, a Hindu friend who argues that uh, people in the West suffer from monotheorism. That if you grow up in a polytheistic culture, you're naturally happier with bothism and with the unity of opposites or complementarity than you are in a uh, than you are in a in a kind of monotheistic tradition where yeah. <laughs> you'll know this coming from Ireland, okay, where, you know, there's one guy who basically has to be right about everything. Yeah. Um, and it, it's interesting because that kind of, you know, one of the worst things I think we do with regulation, and Hayek warned against this, is you take current best practice and then you make it mandatory. So that no one, you know, in other words, this idea that life is an optimization problem with a single right answer Mm. And the single right answer on Wednesday is the same as the single right answer on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that leaves us very, very badly equipped to solve certain problems. And I also think I also think we have in Britain a political class which has evolved to win arguments, not to solve problems. Yeah. And actually, you can win an argument without solving a problem. Mm-hmm. In fact, and I think that focus on kind of being right and winning arguments leads to a, a, a desire for a kind of neatness of model, which is totally inappropriate. And, and marketing actually, of course, is in a sense, you know, it's that real world problem in microcosm. And it's the only part of a business, and I would argue. I mean, marketing and working in an agency are two of very, very few places in the world where you can make a stupid suggestion and still get promoted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it, and it's, I mean, I, I learned, I'm in the industry a long time now, and I, and I think it took me a while to be comfortable with people disagreeing with me because I, I always took it as, as a challenge and I, as as you say, as, a, as a, an argument or debate that I had to win rather than, as you've famously said before, like the opposite of a good idea is another good idea, but my good idea was the one that I felt if I conceded on that then I I'd somehow lost yes. and I wouldn't be I wouldn't be perceived as being as good as I wanted to project. So and it is the, a, it's but, a comfortable way, maybe, you have. maybe both your ideas are good. Yeah. And maybe as I said the opposite of a good idea is another good idea. Yeah, it's not exactly. like high school maths. Yeah. And yet we've created this world where people want to be right. Now the great thing about being a marketer is it probably of necessity means you spend a lot of time being relatively comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and even ignorance. Mm-hmm. Where you know every time you produce a piece, you've put the best thought of it and thought you can into it, but you still admit, I don't know how well this is going to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, I really don't know. I, I, you know, I, I think I've done the best I can, but genuinely, it could be a breakthrough or it could be a disaster. Well, I'll give you a lovely example of that, which is why quite often bravery does pay. So Netflix famously um, uh, 
offered themselves for sale to Blockbuster Video for mm. $50 million. And Blockbuster turned them down. And everybody goes, Blockbuster, ha, you're such idiots. You couldn't foresee, you know, DVDs. It was DVDs by post then. It wasn't streaming. Yeah, yeah. You totally failed to grasp the future. But actually, Netflix wasn't that clever an idea uh, when it simply went along and asked for $50 million from Blockbuster. What made it clever was a very, very brave proposition, which was three films at any time for $12.99 a month or whatever it was, okay? Replace them as often as you like, no late fees ever. Mm. And it was only when they came up with that, which is quite brave, because had people taken full advantage of that offer, of course, they would have gone bust. You know, if people had just started watching a film every evening and posting the bloody DVD back... You know, rather as if gyms would all go bust if everybody turned up with the frequency they intended when they joined the gym. (laughs) It did rely on a degree of human inertia which you couldn't predict. Yeah. You know, you know what? What if you know? Presumably, I I suppose with Netflix, there were like student houses full of film students on whom Netflix lost quite a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, right? Um. You know, because they literally were. You know, you had five people all studying cinema in a bloody house. I bet they were bloody returning yeah, the film yeah. every three days. Absolutely. Overall, that was the break. That was the ten x. That was the psychological ten x. It was the proposition that people really bought into. But mm. could you know whether that was going to work in advance? No. The one thing that made it worth trying was, in a sense, that most other people were probably too scared to try it, yeah. but also that. Um, Blockbuster video, pretty much probably all their profits probably came from late, late fees. fees. I might be guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, true. Um, let, let's talk about signaling. We know what signaling is um, in terms of luxury goods, but what's counter signaling? What does that mean? Ah, that's interesting. And it, 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 it inarguably exists. As far as we know, um, it's only known among humans. So whereas signaling in both behavioral terms and in terms of the kind of phenotype and the extended phenotype, you know, the body itself and the, you know, the things we carry and fashion and so forth, whereas that's found in the most famous example being peacocks, birdsong, you know, mating calls, um, nest building, okay, that kind of signaling, which is upfront, costly effort as inarguable irrefutable proof of either fitness or commitment Mm. okay you know it's a bit of an unromantic point but the engagement ring is a commitment device okay you know i'm effectively happy to splurge a huge amount of money on something with very little resale value to prove that i'm interested in a relationship rather than the one night stand because giving away you know uh two-month salary in exchange for a one-night stand isn't really a very replicable strategy, okay? A very affordable strategy. So you have that kind of signaling, costly signaling in particular, okay? But there's another kind of signaling, which is, if you like, it's the fact that if if you're the bassist in a really cool band, uh, you can look weird, dress appallingly, and uh, neglect your personal hygiene. And the way you do that is what you're basically saying you know, there's a bit of a Kate Moss, Pete, um, Pete Doherty <laughs> thing. Yeah, Pete Doherty thing going on there, which is I'm so cool, I don't have to care about cool in areas where other people do. So a classic example of counter-signaling would be um, uh, if you're an A-list actor, okay, you turn up to the Oscars in a Prius. Right. Now, you know, if, you know, patently, if you're, you know, a previous Oscar winner, 
or you're, you know, you know, Helen Mirren. No one goes, well, oh, see that Helen's gone down in the world a bit. You know, can't even yeah. afford a limo. Yeah. You know, where's the stretch, Helen? You know, do you need, do you need any help with the finances? Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody does that because they, you know, you can effectively, very clearly position that's a choice, not a compromise. Mm-hmm. And why it's important, and I was talking at the Behavioural Science for Environmentalism conference, uh, is that you've got to be very careful developing environmental behaviours which are good for counter-signalling but don't really work outside high-status groups. So a classic case would be the CEO of a large corporation or a prime minister could cycle to work, okay? Mm. Um, uh, and no one thinks, well, you know, uh, you know, clearly, you you know, you're on your uppers. You can't afford a car, or you know, you know, it's absolutely clear that you've turned down the official car in order to make a journey by bike, and you therefore make your, you further elevate your status by the games you don't have to play. You know, mm-hmm. um, in a way, actually, you might argue certain celebrities being really, really rude could possibly come into that. Uh, it's not a great idea, to be honest. But um, you know, there are certain behaviours. Like Elon people... Musk. Elon Musk. You said the weirdness of him. Yeah. Is is that a classic case of counter-signal? I literally don't care because I could do what I want. So I'm. He, yeah. he, he abuses that privilege, if you will, with his uh, quite often. It's like nobody in the room says this is not a good idea. But he's like he knows it's not a good idea. But he says I don't care. Um, so it's that when no. you take it to its nth degree. And, and by the way, I, I think a lot of people get counter-signaling wrong. Um, I think sometimes it just looks fake. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can very easily be pulled up on inconsistency because the same person who turns up at the Oscars on a, uh, in a Prius uh, the following week flies out on a private jet. You know, uh, right. it's not. Um, but the point I'm making is, if you turn up to work at Pizza Hut on a bike, the natural assumption is you can't afford a car. Yeah. One of the most interesting things. Now, don't shoot the messenger here, but it's very, very interesting. Is that. Um, Cycling in London is pretty white, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, how you signal also depends on who you're signaling to. Now, several people have spoken to me about this. I'm not, I'm not, I didn't invent this. Other people who are people of colour told me this thing, which is effectively no one moves from Lagos to London qualifies as a thoracic consultant surgeon, okay, so they can ring their family back in Lagos and say, and guess what? I've bought a bicycle. Yeah. Right. Okay. right. You want to work. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, and, and people of colour have admitted this freely to me. They said, you know, in, in a particular milieu, the whole point of moving to the UK, I don't know, that's probably a little bit narrow, and they are benefit, you know, but um, you, know, you can argue that there are certain behaviours which only certain people can actually make use of. Mm-hmm. And the problem with those, when, when people go, hey, look, I cycle to work, well, that's because you live in central London, right? Yeah, Dick? yeah. Okay? I can't cycle to work because it's 28 miles, and I'm 57 years old, and sometimes it rains, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I have to carry three laptops. You know, electric cargo bike might one day be a kind of compromise. I don't but, but what's so interesting about that is counter-signaling is kind of dangerous because you create a movement of people who do it, and you, but it never scales. Right, yeah, yeah. And the whole point of counter-signaling, of course, is it has its meaning because not everybody can do it. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's signaling. It's still signaling, but it's, yeah, I get what you mean. Um, sticking with signaling for a minute, because you, you talked about... I mean, um, I'll be honest with you, I vape in the office quite a bit. And so do I. Part of that is... 
Part of that is my own convenience, but a bit of it is uh, you get away with what you can uniquely get away yeah. with, okay? Yeah. And a little bit of that is going, look, I've been here 30 fucking five years. I arrived in a place where you could actually, you know, smoke in, an office. Smoke in the office. Damn it, you're right, okay? And there's a little bit of sod you, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, you, Johnny, come late, these can come and install your fatuous rules. Yeah. There is part of it in principle. It's absolutely foolish just to make the rules for vaping the same as the rules for smoking, because then you force vapors to be surrounded by smokers, yeah. which is temptation, okay? And the smokers are going to go, do you, you know, the battery runs out, do you yeah. want a fact? Yeah. That's like holding a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in a pub, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence they don't hold meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. They go to church halls. Yeah. You don't want to be there going, my name is Barry, and I'm an alcoholic, and <laughs> three yards away, someone's going, point to the usual, as yeah. it, Dave, right? No, absolutely. really wouldn't help. No. And so I find that just really, really interesting and important because I think, um, you know, I, I think we've kind of, um, but nonetheless, the counter signaling thing is interesting. As far as we know, only humans do it. Right. But there's an element of signaling, which is that if there are things you can do that other people can't, or there are things you can do at low cost mm. that other people can only do at high cost, okay? Yeah. Then you do them. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, the reason very good mathematicians want to, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, if you're very good at something, then the effort required to to achieve something is ten percent of the effort required by someone else. So yeah. it makes sense for you to demonstrate prowess yeah, yeah. through that. It's not yeah. necessarily that a person can't do it. It's that for the you know, for a less fit for a less fit peacock carrying a massive great tail around on your back. Mm. Okay. Um, is, uh, is is feasible, but um, uh, the chance of survival is quite a bit lower. Right. So, And you mentioned earlier on, we were talking, you, you talked about how the thing that gets the most budget je- tends to be thought of as the most important thing. So when you think about marketing generally, I'm, we mostly talk about advertising, but marketing generally and signaling, packaging, right? Packaging, I think, is is signaling from a brand point of view. Um, and you think about the Apple box, oh, yeah. like it's, it's yeah, a stunning box. Way. The way you open an Apple product, it's amazing, right? And the effort now, now it's ultimately something you chuck in the bin, right? So I throw it in the bin, but I'm I'm, I'm really impressed with the packaging around the Apple, uh, the they, iPhone. They actually, Should that be done they more? Actually optimized. They optimized for the suction so that it would take a certain number of seconds to open the box to maximize, this is the peak end rule, it's great behavioral science, to maximize what you might call the drum roll before the product itself reveals right. itself. And so it's, I mean, it borrows directly from uh, Dr. Goebbels, who used to make the crowd wait for a Hitler balcony appearance, and then would look at the sky and uh, wait, look at a cloud, and when the cloud was about five seconds from passing the sun, push Hitler out on the balcony. Right. And so Hitler would appear on the balcony and then suddenly was illuminated by sunlight. Okay. Right. Yeah, and yeah. everything was bright. And, you know, it, it, it is in a sense that, you know, it borrows from the same kind of playbook um, as that. But no, I mean, packaging, uh, by the way, I mean, one of my gripes about the marketing services industry is I would argue that design is quite often more valuable than advertising, but it gets less attention and less budget, not because it's less valuable, but because it's sort of perceived as being cheaper. Right. But actually, Jeremy Bullmore made the fantastic point that packaging is where a product or a commodity becomes a brand. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, um, and the, you know, uh, uh, also, there's also an element of costly signaling in it. 
Um, there's also, I think, a very strong element, by the way, in something which is consumed from the packaging, which many things are. Um, I, I would argue that uh, it has a much, much greater effect of our appreciation of food and drink. I had to give a talk to an aluminium conference a couple of weeks ago. That and one of the fun. things I shared with them, well, funny enough, I'm a big fan of this because there's nothing, there's nothing so niche that delving into it deeply for five days isn't rewarding. And uh, one of the things I relate to them, which I think is interesting, is it's only anecdotal, but well, now, hold on, here we go. Okay, right. Mark Ritson, who is my personal Svengali to an extent, um, uh, the average is the enemy of the marketer, right? Most people collecting data want to average it because it's designed for reporting up to head office and ultimately to the shareholders and all the finance people care about, all the um, uh, all the shareholders care about is aggregates yeah. and averages, okay, for the purpose of comparison. In marketing, the information you want is outliers. Yeah. I would argue in scientific discovery as well. It's yeah. the weird anomaly that's more likely to lead to something significant than the average. The average tells you actually nothing in many cases and actually is, is deceiving. You may not even have many average customers. Your customers may be a mixture of high frequency, low frequency, et cetera. Yeah. And so um, that business, one of the things I will say is that um, I'm pro-anecdote. You know, I'm, I'm pro-anecdote because we generally yap about things which strike us as surprising. Mm. And um, uh, therefore, that question, that business which statisticians occasionally do of rejecting things as being anecdotal yeah. doesn't fully understand, I think, the environmental, the informational environment in which the information occurred. The reason it survived as an anecdote in Darwinian terms is because it's sufficiently surprising or interesting to deserve retelling. Yeah. You know, generally, nobody runs into a camp and says nothing's happening outside. But if someone says there's a funny noise in the bushes, you pay attention to that mm, because mm. your survival may depend on it. Yeah, the average is funny because I use it in meat. Well, probably wasn't the best analogy, but it makes the point. Uh, I say my line, like the average human being has one testicle and that's factually yeah. correct. So what it tells you, absolutely nothing. And in fact, it gives you misinformation. So um, yeah, you know, the action is all on the on, on the margins and on the edges, which is what, what's interesting. Um, right, behavioral economics. So some might say, and you know, don't shoot the messenger, some might say that it, it it's a clever way to justify how we manipulate consumer choices, right? So talk to me a little bit about reframing, a classic yes, behavioral um, psychological trick about reframing uh, and making people believe that their decision is a choice as opposed to a compromise, which it often is. So no one no one would argue that you cannot use behavioral science for ill, at least for a time. You might argue that you ultimately get rumbled. I would argue that sludge with, you know, discounted subscriptions, which automatically ramp up to the uh, the full amount after a month and then make it impossible for you to cancel without making an international phone call. That's an example that Richard Thaler cites of what he calls sludge, not nudge. Okay. Um, those things are actually very bad. And as a behavioral scientist, I really discourage them because they're killing the bloody subscriptions industry. They're, you know, they're helping to kill the news industry by making customers basically look at offers for subscriptions and going, not taking a risk, mate. I know what happened last time. Yeah. Okay. Um, however, it's also worth noting that people often make decisions without even considering alternatives. That the exercise of free will is best served 
with a particular kind of informed mindset and that you can present as i as i mentioned by the way with your four free train journeys a year okay you can have people making informed choices based on what they know and what you know and what other people know, okay, based on a kind of aggregation of context and experience and knowledge and facts, and you can have people make ill-informed choices. Um, and one of, the, one of the dangers, for example, is that uh, when we choose, uh, one of the things that concerns me is things like online property search, online dating, actually, which is when we choose in a particular way sequentially, we think, because I'm choosing the best thing at every stage of this journey, okay, I'm getting the best there is. Mm -hmm. That's not true, okay? Now, what an estate agent does, okay, is a estate agent actually is a better decision-making aid than a website because the estate agent is also thinking, what can I sell this guy that I couldn't sell to anybody else? Okay, I'm just thinking, what do I want? Where do I want to live? Yeah. Okay. And so I'll go in three bedroom, dirty, 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 right, right. Now, there may be, by the way, there may be utterly brilliant, okay, um, properties that I never get to see. Because what I don't see is what I'm eliminating at each stage of the journey. <laughs> One of the, uh, 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 if you've got any online retailers listening to this, okay, when you go and shop for clothes, let's say it's ASOS, and you go, oh, I better choose by size because I don't want to look at a load of things that don't fit me. Mm-hmm. So you put it, you know, size 12. I obviously don't, being a bloke and not being fat, but you put it in size 12 and you brought all the size 12 clothes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what you're actually saying there isn't, I want a size 12 frock. Okay. What you're saying actually is, don't show me anything that I can't wear. Now, stupidly, what the website then does is because you've searched for size 12 clothing, okay, it then gets rid of necklaces, sunglasses, handbags, anything that's that's sizeless is no longer shown to the customer. Yeah. Now, in the same way with a property website, um, that what I want to be saying is don't show me anything that's this. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm forced to say, show me this. Right. Now, the yeah. estate agent. If I turn up at an estate agent, the typical estate agent is going to take one look at me, as indeed they did with David Ogilvy when they sold him a 30-bedroom chateau 450 miles from Paris, okay? Uh, They're going to take one look at me and go, well, you know, I could sell that guy the house down the road, but let's face it, anybody could buy that, okay, right? I can Mm -hmm. sell that to anybody. Finally, I've got a chance to offload that fucking windmill, (laughs) or with, you know, the converted station. You know, you know, you know. Yeah, okay? yeah. The guy's going. This guy's a bit of a weirdo. And if I if I actually ham that up a bit and go, you know, I'm totally happy with, you know, converting water towers on top of a 200 foot pole. The guy's going to go. Have I got a house for you? Yeah. And so I think that there's a simple question that we can think we're choosing optimally and we're not. Yeah. And so one of the great things behavioural science can do is just shake it up a bit. Yeah. You know. I mean, undoubtedly, there are things, you know, there are defaults. Uh, Richard Thaler has a good take on this, you know, that what he favours for, um, what he favours for whether you volunteer to be a an organ donor at the time you renew your car license, say, is Richard favours managed choice. I would like to be an organ donor. I would not like to be an organ donor. Mm. And that gets a result of about 50%. If you, if you opt in, it's 80%. If you opt, sorry, if you opt in, 20% of people are organ donors. If you opt, out 
uh, it's about 60% of people or organ donors, 70% of people. Right. Thaler favours, I think, rightly, the one in the middle, because he argues that, one, there's no risk that someone simply misses the box and ends up becoming an organ donor without knowing it, and two, that it is presenting the choices without bias, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm. But when you made it opt-in, people tended to assume, I don't know, uh, suddenly opt-in makes your mind focus on the downside, yeah. whereas opt-out arguably makes you focus on the what good you, reason well, you, you have to make an active out. choice why not to do something yeah. as opposed to a, a, a positive choice to do something. Yeah. It's yeah. very similar to that distinction that's made in philosophy between positive freedoms and negative freedoms, you know, freedom to and freedom from and yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, I'm going to get this wrong, but there's a there's a quote. Maybe it was Ogilvy, like the best advertising finds itself in the truth. I don't know who said it. You you can correct me on it. But if and you've talked a lot about this that we can create value. It's created in the mind, so we can create that perception. But but the perception is purely fabricated, if you will. So again, don't shoot the messenger. It's not, it's not, no, 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 no. The perception is all that matters ultimately. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Okay, I don't want uh, um, people working in the field of engineering to be disproportionately focused on the emotional effect of their achievements rather than on the robustness of the bridge they're building, yeah. okay? But equally, the ultimate customer experience, when, when you're building a bridge, okay, that doesn't involve humans. That's a pretty rational activity. It can be art. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the fantastic Swiss, early concrete Swiss bridge builder, whose name briefly escaped me, but it can be art, but nonetheless, it's got to do a job, and you can basically mm-hmm. measure using data whether it's going to do that job in certain climatic conditions under an earthquake, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. On the other hand, when you paint the ro- the lines, the road markings on the bridge, okay, then you're in the field of psychology. And you could have a fine for slowing down, but you can also paint stripy lines on the road that get closer and closer, which just encourage people to slow down anyway, which just make it psychologically easier to decelerate. Mm-hmm. Now, at the third level, if you're dealing with the field of enjoyment, you might say, and this is where I get back to my aluminium point, which I failed to make, I don't really drink water. Um, my dad doesn't drink water either. That, that, neither of us is a raging alcoholic. I might make that point. We drink a lot of tea and coffee, uh, and, and I'll drink soft drinks quite a lot. And I'll mm-hmm. drink, I'll drink flavoured waters, okay, and I'll drink quite a lot of dark coke. But weirdly, I started drinking water when it came in an aluminium can. Right. Well, why, quite why, why was that? I have, I have no idea. Now, okay, you could argue that if it's from the fridge, a can is colder than the pet bottle. There could be some element of taste or smell, which is making me slightly, you know, disquieted about the uh, the bottle. Uh, aluminium, by the way, is much more recyclable than PET is because PET is so cheap to manufacture, people don't bother recycling it, whereas recycled aluminium uses 5% of the energy of aluminium retrieved from bauxite. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of the, I think the majority of the aluminium ever mined in history you know, going back to the uh, you know the early last century, uh, is still in circulation. Right. I noticed that now. I, I work with people who are you know you know pretty savvy about environmentalism, but I heard them saying, "Oh, isn't it a pity that the Nespresso capsules are made from aluminium?" No, it's brilliant. I post them off once every two months. They get either turned into a bicycle or turned into new Nespresso. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I don't think it is a bad thing. 
that they're made, made for that material, but people automatically assume that because it looks a bit better, then it's probably environmentally worse. Yeah. So, you know, you're up against all these kind of misconceptions. I mean, people have, I mean, a brilliant one, a fantastic misconception, which when you think about it, it's kind of weird. So when you have a very bad winter and you have a fuel crisis, you must have had the same thing in Ireland, although you don't get as bastard cold as we do, do you, generally? Uh, no, maybe not, but close. I mean, close, close. One of the things that, that's really interesting is that all the conversation in the media focused around the cost of heating, okay? Oh, and then what you get is you get old people. Older people tend to go a bit weird about money. I'm not saying that some of them aren't poor. That would be absolutely monstrous thing to say. But I'm also saying that even quite wealthy old people go very weird about money because, of course, you're paranoid about it running out, effectively. Mm. You haven't got any, you know, you've got no prospect of promotions or pay rises. And... As David Halpern said, talking from the Behavioural Insights team, the message you really needed to get across was, when in doubt, keep the person, not the room. Or, you see what I mean? Yeah. So actually, for minuscule cost, okay, uh, you know, there are people who are literally freezing because they're terrified of turning their central heating on, where a single hot water bottle and a sleeping bag would actually make you comfortable. Mm. Okay, I mean Germans, interestingly, and um, uh, they they tend to sleep in the winter. They sleep with the windows open, so they wrap up very warm in bed. But the the air temperature of the room is very very low. Okay, I don't know why they. Do what this. does that do for them? What's the point of that? They, they believe it's health. It's part. I mean, actually, I mean the fact that they ventilate very well, Germans, may right. have explained their low COVID rate uh, mm. early on. Okay. Uh, uh, or may have contributed to a low, lower COVID spread, but they've, they've got some sort of Protestant belief in you know <laughs> ventilation. It's, it's uncomfortable, so it must be good, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but it, it's a it, it's a very long-standing tradition that you you actually your bedroom is actually cold, and they somehow think this is better. Now, you know there are lots of solutions like a very small electric blanket, a sleeping bag, or I mean you know if you wanted to, you know you could heat one room and not the others. Yeah. Okay. In order to avoid significant discomfort, there are far, far cheaper um, solutions. But for whatever reason, people have mental blind spots. You know, I, th I think I think that's you know one, one of the most. I mean, one of the interesting things of a mental blind spot. And I'm talking to this guy who was running a B and B in Kent, and he was wondering whether to get an electric car charger. And the first guest he had turned up in a Tesla with a three percent range remaining. Right now, I know I know Kent and electric car chargers, and I know that guy basically drove past three rapid chargers, you know, between the channel ports and getting to the B and B. And I suddenly realised that, of course, everybody discussing electric cars has this kind of assumption that, like in a petrol car, you fill it up to the top and then you run it down as far as you can before you fill it up again mm -hmm. to avoid recharging. Okay. And quite a lot of the discussion of electric cars talks of the time it takes to charge from 5% to 100. Mm -hmm. Okay. I've had, well, my wife and I have had two electric cars, in my case, for two and a half years. Okay. I have never charged from 5% to 100. You don't do that. Mm. Okay. You're at 40% and you go, I could do with a piss and a cup of coffee. Ooh, look, there's a charger. Yeah. And you charge from 40 to 60. And all you do is you fundamentally just have to change your mentality so that when you get an opportunity to charge, you charge. You no, we it. didn't do that with petrol. We yeah. didn't do that with petrol. But uh, because, you know, um, but what, what you suddenly notice is people are carrying habits from one 
area to another area mm-hmm. without rethinking them. Yeah. It's very strange. Sophie, could grab me a coffee, could you? I don't know. I will need to go in just a few minutes. Sorry, I've, I've, I've got a medical appointment, so I better go in just a couple in about yeah, two minutes. That's but, fine. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, one of my great contentions at the moment: two things. Okay, one, since most days I only drive twenty miles, okay, or less. Why can't I buy a solar charger that sits at home, charging up a battery with about eight kilowatts, okay, mm-hmm. so that I can just Blank it into the car, and it'll give me, you know, it'll basically restore the energy I, I, I used driving around that day. Now, there will be days when I need to drive 300 miles. Yeah. But on those rare days, maybe I don't need to spend 600 quid installing a home charger. What I need is to spend 2,000 pounds installing a solar thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that range anxiety is largely, it depends on your infrastructure, but it's largely an American fear that's been irrationally transplanted to the UK. Yeah, and you make the point before, I've heard you talk about the fact that that communications talk about range are just, you know, exaggerating the problem, or shining a light on the problem and reinforcing it. They're counterproductive, I think, to a large extent, because generally speaking, I mean, my wife's Mini, my wife's electric Mini has a range of 100 miles. Mm -hmm. Um, all it takes, actually, is that you make sure that every time you go shopping, you do a bit of charging. Yeah, yeah. It's Basically just changing your behaviour. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it's not carrying that behaviour from what we used to do with petrol. Um, what, Rory... Well, the other things you get, by the way, are stupid statistics. Like, it takes, you know, one minute and nine seconds to fill a car with petrol. Yeah. Therefore, how can we, you know... Actually, it doesn't, because people leave the car at the pump. They go into M&S Simply Food. They spend ages wandering around buying two bottles of wine and a few, you know... Yeah, yeah. Um, Bought pies, and then they come out again 15, 20 minutes later. It's not, you know, okay, in theory, refueling with petrol is instantaneous. You know, mm-hmm. in practice, it's it's actually, okay, it's not as long as an electric car charge, but it's of the same order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to keep you much longer. Last question. How did you get into advertising in the first place? Just how what got you started? How did you find uh, yourself in, in, an, in an agency? This is an odd case where the school career service did actually kind of get it right in that um, I was quite academic and quite good mathematically, actually, reasonably good. I was my brother was on another planet to me. Um, but um, I was curious and generally, you know, a mixture of kind of creative and there's, there's a quality, I think, in advertising, which the IPA identified as what you call diagonal thinking, which is that you can flip between uh, lateral thinking and deductive thinking and back again very mm. quickly. And they coined this phrase diagonal thinking. And I probably was a diagonal thinker um, because they did this survey of people, you know, uh, successful people in the advertising industry and, and looked for the distinguishing characteristics. Right. Now, the school career service, there were two things that came, I think, in the top two. Number, uh, and I can't remember, it might have been advertising first, barrister second. Mm. You have barristers in Ireland. They're like people with yeah, the yeah. So you, you know, you still got a good show. Because actually, I, I had a German friend who was incensed by the way um, uh, 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 our judges still wear wigs. Mm-hmm. How ridiculous! As I find that, if you've grown up in the UK, if you're sentenced to a tent stretch by a guy in a suit, yeah. that's just wrong, isn't it? Right? Okay. <laughs> if I have to do some tent stretch in Bloody Wakefield Prison, I want to be told by a guy in a fucking wig, yeah. right? <laughs> Stop that! Not having some bloke who's turned up to the office, right? Bugger that. Anyway, <laughs> okay. 
but barrister was first, and I think oh, might have been advertising person first, barrister second. So Brigadier Smales, who was a retired army officer, who was the Monmouth School careers officer, I think deserves a small vote of thanks. And then when I was at university, I realised lots of people were going into banking and management consultancy because it was the late eighties. And being blunt about it, the Venn diagram of interesting and reasonably lucrative isn't you know the overlap isn't all that big. Yeah. Right. You know actuarial work is well paid but it's it's not rock and roll right mm-hmm. and so i i applied i just applied to various graduate schemes now obviously the assumption of a graduate scheme is that you become a, an account executive or possibly a planner i was had the extraordinary and miraculous good fortune to get given a job at ogilvy may the direct under drayton bird which was there were other people, Steve Harrison, Randy Hanfeld, and Mike Sim, etc. I'm naming them because there was an extraordinary conflation of David Nobe, um, Andy Firth, Andy Greenaway. Uh, okay, there was an extraordinary concatenation of unbelievably talented people from whom to learn uh, at that place at that time in the late 80s. I mean, it was luck. Okay, I could have ended up, to be honest, I could have, you know, if I'd been offered a job at J. Walter Thompson, I probably would have taken it instead mm-hmm. of the Ogilvy and the and that would have been, without knowing it, that would have been a disaster. Because mm. I absolutely kind of found my tribe, mm. if you like. Um, and then the, then the other thing was, because as part of our graduate scheme, we spent two weeks in the creative department, I spent two weeks in the creative department, wrote a letter for American Express selling the American Express dollar card, which beat the control. And at that point, I was totally hooked. Right. Yeah. Um, I just thought, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I cannot think of anything. And then, because I was in direct marketing, direct marketing is the gateway drug to behavioral economics. Right. Because it keeps throwing up these anomalous findings, which you have to explain, and neither market research nor economic logic can actually explain them. Right. Well, Rory, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I've kept you probably a little bit longer than I said it would. But like... Like I always say this, and you're you're so generous with your time in terms of you, you give a lot back to the industry, and you're very generous with your time. So I appreciate that. Um, you're a, a wise and a wonderful speaker as always. So thank you so much for making the time. Um, it has been a pleasure. I might get you back for my two hundredth episode if I'm still doing it, or I, I might get that. fed That's up. Good. I might get that fed up doing it, Rory. I might just get fed up doing it because it breaks my heart a lot of times. But anyway, it's days like this where I really enjoy it and appreciate it. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Thank Rory. You. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, yes, a big thank you to Rory. Thanks for joining us on a monumental 100th episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, why not listen back to any of our other 99 episodes? You'll find them by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. Thank you, as always, to Kira and Khadija in marketing. And thank you to Andrea on sound. And as always, thank you to our partners, Irish Times Media Solutions, who make all this possible. So... Until next time, thanks for listening. Enjoy your weekend. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.